Our Father, we need your help this morning to understand what your word is saying. And we need your help to hear what you are saying to us. So please be with us. Please open our deaf ears and soften our hard hearts. And might we see the Lord Jesus ever more clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. So this week we're in a court of law, but the case against Jerusalem, the case against Israel is not, it's not a series of facts stacked up one after the other, so witness after witness after witness, or evidence A after evidence B after evidence C. The Lord, the Lord tells us a story, and as you heard, it's a horrific story. It's not the kind of story you would expect to read in the Bible and particularly not the kind of story you would expect to hear in church because all scriptures God breathed but some bits we keep away from Sunday mornings. But not today. I take it it's the kind of story we can't just skirt over. That's because it's a passage that shows us how God feels about sin. Do you want to know how God sees it when we deliberately sin, when when we walk out on him and run after other gods? Well, he says, picture a loving husband. A loving husband whose wife has committed adultery, and not just as a one-off, but again and again and again, without remorse, over years, over a lifetime, with anyone and everyone who's been wandering past and offering her stuff. It's a passage that challenges us because sin is not simply about breaking rules, but it's relational. And it's hard for us to hear. It's hard for our world to hear as well because the narrative, as we've been saying week on week, is, is basically we're to think of ourselves as pretty good. That's the story we hear. We're good people at heart and we don't want to damage people's self-esteem. We've maybe lost our way a bit. Maybe we've let ourselves down. Maybe we're the product of our upbringing or other influences. But what we just need is a bit of help to reach our potential. And yet the Bible won't let us have that. God won't let us have that. Remember, that's a big part of the reason for this topical series. I'm sorry if you had the same reaction as Sarah when you saw the outline for it. But what we're doing week by week together is exposing ourselves to the reality of sin, the reality in all the breadth and diversity of sin, the different models, the various biblical metaphors that God uses. And why do that? Well, it's so that we see afresh how much God loves us. We see how extraordinary the love of Christ is for us. Because when we really get the bad news, that then the good news is even more amazing. When we really see how wicked we are, how corrupt, how depraved our hearts are, then we see how extraordinary and loving and patient and good and generous our God is. Of course, the tendency of our hearts is to downplay sin. We have blind spots. Maybe we even turn a blind eye to our blind spots. We see sin as a problem for other people. We're great at spotting their issues and their failings and their shortcomings and holding on to the past hurts that they've caused us but we're very bad at seeing it in ourselves. As Jesus would say, we're great at spotting sawdust in their eyes, 
but rubbish at spotting, spotting the plank in our own. And so today we have this shocking story. It comes from a time when Israel's people, when, when God's people, when Israel were in the land, God had promised it for them, he had provided it for them, and they had forgotten him, that they had walked out, they had grown self-sufficient. And the Babylonians are looming, they're ready to attack, they're going to defeat them, and Ezekiel calls on his people to repent. He pleads with them, listen to the word of the Lord. Respond. And you see in chapter 24, Jerusalem surrounded and eventually it falls. But this story here, in chapter 16, tells us why. Just to see the lie of the land, if you have a glance down at this big chapter, we'll see that it alternates. It alternates between a description of Israel and God's response, and then Israel again and God's response. So our first point then, focusing in on Israel, and we see verse 1 to 5, Israel's helplessness. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to you, Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. In Jerusalem, you were helpless and you were hopeless. You might arrogantly, with a bit of a swagger, think you're okay, you're sacred, you're special, you're good. But actually, verse 3, your origins are murky. Your, your father's an Amorite, your mother's a Hittite. He's, he's probably referring to the fact that Jerusalem, it seems, was initially a Canaanite city that was defeated and adapted and developed by the people of God. D- don't kid yourselves, Jerusalem. Your origins are depraved. Your spiritual roots, you like to say that Abraham and Sarah, in reality, they're from a pagan people. The people who are in the land before you. And this city, this baby, didn't have the usual acts performed of it at the time, some historical midwifery. You see, the umbilical cord was not cut. The baby wasn't washed. The skin wasn't rubbed in salt. The child not swaddled. She, she was naked and abandoned and discarded and despised and she will be dead within hours. See, Ezekiel says, you are helpless. You are literally nothing. This baby is wriggling about in a pool of blood. For people who are proud, he is saying, you've got very little to be proud of. It's a stark image. It's meant to move us. Sometimes you hear of sad situations where mums aren't able to cope and so leave a baby on a doorstep. This is worse. Because the baby's in a field. The baby's about to die. This ought to be game over. And the Bible pulls no punches in saying, clearly this is a story of Jerusalem, of Israel. But in another another sense, it's us. After Genesis 3, as humanity walks out on the God of life, it's our natural position. Self and sinfulness, helplessness, without hope. We don't just read this chapter as a position of theory, a kind of historical account of trying to get what was going on in Israel at this time but we read it of a position of reality, of our natural status outside of him. 
we see their hopelessness. Which then alternates, verse 6 to 14, with God's kindness. Because he rescues her from the pool of blood. And he adopts her. And he gives her a hope and a future, not because she deserves it, but because he is kind. It is his free and utterly undeserved mercy. Have a look at 6 and 7. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. He gives her a life and a future and everything. And she grows and she matures and she develops and this hopeless infant becomes this mature maiden. But she's still naked at this point, which she's reached adulthood, is shameful, and so he passes by later and he marries her. Verse 8. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. If you know Ruth at all, you might remember the spreading of the corner of the garment language. It's marriage, it's covenant, it's protection. Boaz covers Ruth. And so God is the kind and compassionate rescuer. He doesn't just give life to the dead, but his care and provision is ongoing and generous. And the marriage covenant means I will be your husband and I will protect you and look after you and provide for you. The focus in verse 8 is not like a normal marriage, where you see husband and wife facing each other, bride and groom making promises. This is all about God's commitment. You became mine, he says. Now, don't read that through the ears of our sort of culture of equality now, but Just read it in him assuming protection for her, total responsibility, total care, total love. And it's not just talk. There is complete commitment, devotion, lavish actions. Verse 9, there's care, cleansing, commitment. Verse 10 to 12, he, he dresses her like a queen, lavishing kindness and clothes and jewelry upon his bride. Verse 13, she eats the food of royalty and becomes beautiful. And famous, verse 14, your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. Nations looked at Israel and were astounded because the Lord had blessed her, lavished his love upon her. That's the kind of God he is. He's a kind of God who's generous who lavishes his love upon his children. He he blesses them. Our God is good to his people. It it was a gift bountifully given, which actually meant that they began to show something of what God is like. They reflect his own splendor. Something of how he he works in the world now among his people too. He, He sustains us with mercies new each morning. He's abundant and extravagant grace. In in, in a sense, we're a reflection, as they were to be, of his character and goodness and kindness. I say that because often, as a Christian, I can simply focus on what's wrong and what I've not got. And I lose thankfulness or joy or contentment 
Because my focus is on what I don't have rather than what I do have in Christ. So it's helpful, again, just to see God's kindness to his people. And again, this story of Israel parallels with your story and my story. He pours out his undeserved blessing upon us, and what do we do? Well, look at how Israel responds in this big section in the middle. This is the shocking bit. How does God's people respond to his blessing? Shameless, insatiable promiscuity. Despite all he's done for her, despite his love poured down upon her, despite all she owes him, again and again and again and again she betrays her husband. You want to know how God feels about sin? Adultery. In 15 to 22, the focus seems to be primarily about religious promiscuity, running after other gods. And in 23 to 34, the focus shifts onto political promiscuity. So see how it works out. The gifts that God gives his bride, she uses to worship other gods. So verse 16, beautiful garments. Well, they become raw materials for worshipping other gods on high places. Verse 17, the jewellery he gives her, well, they're the raw materials for idol construction. The kind of stuff we saw last week and the kids are looking at in the slot this morning. Verse 18, her clothes or oil offered to idols. The food even, verse 19, offered to idols. Jerusalem, the bride, turns away from the God who's given her gifts for the sake of prostitution. The devoted husband gives his wife a gorgeous dress, beautiful jewellery, extravagant perfume, and she uses it to go and attract other men and shack up with them. How have we got here? How have we reached this point? Verse 15. Do you see it's pride? It is confidence, not in the God who has rescued and provided and lavished his love, but it's confidence in the things that he's given. She's intoxicated and overcome. Confidence in her beauty and her fame. Twenty-three to thirty-four, the political sphere, and the language is just graphic. Well done, Hannah, for reading. Verse twenty-five and twenty-six are horrific. The verses are talking about treaties and alliances with neighbours, alliances that the Lord has completely outlawed, that ought not to have been made, whether with Egyptians or Philistines or Assyrians or Babylonians. Israel's ignored the Lord and behaved like a harlot. But it's even worse than that, because by verse 30, she's not even really a prostitute. She's worse than a prostitute. If I can put it like this, and and don't take this the wrong way, at least a prostitute gets paid for her work. At least she's given money. But for Israel, for Jerusalem, she stands on the street corner and offers money for her services. 
She gives out gifts. It's not pay me to sleep with you. It's I'll pay you if I can sleep with you. It's extraordinary. And history tells us of them. They're called tribute payments. You can read of them through the the history of Israel. They've been given to various nations and at various times. And what would happen? It would be money from Israel for these nations to protect her. The people might call them tribute payments. God says that you're flirting with foreign rulers. You're trusting them rather than me. Rather than me providing, you're forming alliances and, and partnerships with other people. To put it bluntly, rather than being faithful to God, she's in bed with the neighbours. And we're meant to find this awkward. We're meant to blush as we read these verses. This language is meant to be shocking. Because what's going on at root is we have a people who who take the gifts that God gives them and then forgets him. Just a couple of ways that this works out. I'm not going to spend loads of time applying this because there's lots of overlap from last week, so do listen in to Psalm 115 if you haven't already. It's the kind of thing as well that we can think about in home groups. But just a couple of things to be aware of as we, we think about Israel's response. The first thing to say is, is remember it is the Lord who gives you all that you have. It's him. Don't forget him. Remember him daily. The Lord provides. The brain that you have, the beauty, the skills, the wealth, the job, the family, the health, the house, every breath is from him. But but like Jerusalem, can't we just become so proud? And we forget him and we, we think it's about us. And we're intoxicated by, by, by fame and beauty and we forget where we get it from. We forget where these good things come from. We become self-sufficient. We take matters into our own hands. Just a thought, if you're a parent here, a very helpful prayer to pray with kids, whether now or in years to come, is thank you, Lord, for making me like this. Thank you, Lord, for making me clever, or sporty, or musical, or good at making friends, or good at trying, or whatever it is. Because at school, the culture is to entirely ignore God, to take credit for self. And yet we can be helping our children think through, what does it mean to say thank you to God for the things that he's given me? Taking eyes off self and back onto him, the one who gives them gifts. So first thing is just, it's obvious, but remember him. Remember where it all comes from. Israel didn't. But secondly, it's taking care and using the things that he's given you as they're meant to be used. So see them as blessings from him. Don't, don't worship them. The issue in Ezekiel is that God's blessings were used to worship other gods, to make alliances, to, to bow down to idols. And it sounds a ludicrous thing to do, doesn't it? But Ezekiel 16 is a mirror 
Because I take it as what you and I do all day long. We, he gives us the blessing of money, and so easily we kneel to the God of wealth. He gives us the blessing of beauty, and we kneel at the God of image. He gives us the blessing of relationship, and we kneel to the God of love. The blessing of comfort, and we, and we bow down to it, and our lives are shaped by it. Again, we saw lots of this last week. But if I can just say this, don't believe the promises of these gods. Reminds me, of, do you watch The Voice at the moment? Any of you watching The Voice? It, the, 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 these judges give their pitch to the contestants saying, come on my team, come on my team. And these gods say, come on my team, look what I can do for you, look what I can give you. Don't believe them. They can never provide. They remember where these blessings come from, and remember how to use them. But then we come to the conclusion. 35 to 62. God's judgment and grace. I'm going to read from 36 to 42, and I want you to see if you can spot basically three aspects of judgment that God unpacks for us. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body and your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers. And they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewellery and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Lots of stuff in there, but just three aspects to pick up up on. The first one is that in very sort of Romans 1 terms, he gives them what they want. Their unfaithfulness and the consequences of their unfaithfulness are going to catch up with them. They had gathered the nations to go worship with them, to be unfaithful with them. Now the Lord will gather the nations and will be destroyed by them. The idols that they've worshipped will be their undoing. He gives them what they want. The things that they worship will be the things that judge them. Sometimes you see that in life. Sometimes you see God allowing people to have what they want. And of course that thing was never meant to be their master and it destroys them. You see it in individuals, you see it in cultures more generally. The things that we love become the things that rule us and that ruin us. So he gives them what they want. Secondly, he removes his garment. So in 37, he's going to strip them. You'll find yourselves alone and exposed in the world and vulnerable. 
We say, I want to live without him, and he gives us that. We're left naked and bare and without the blessings he had provided, without the protection that he promised. We say, leave me alone, God. And he leaves them alone. And thirdly, finally, death. That's the logical end point of walking out on the God who says to us at the start of the chapter, live. You walk out on the God of life, and there you have death. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And this is all just a bit in your face and you've got all kinds of questions, but I hope you can see from the passage, from the picture that's used, the metaphor, why God can't just ignore his people walking out on him. Sometimes people say that, well, why can't God just forgive? Why does it matter so much? But imagine this was a real marriage. Imagine a real spouse, a real husband and a real wife living for years like this and the wrong spouse does, does nothing about it. Just indifferent. Just turns a blind eye to what's going on. Yeah, that's fine. Just go off and have fun. What would it say about the feelings of the, the wronged spouse for the adulterous spouse? They, they didn't really care. They didn't really love them. Of course they would be angry. They'd have every right to be angry, wrathful. And our love is just a poor imitation of God's love. Just a shadow of the intensity and the commitment and the justice that he feels. Of course our adulterous sin matters to our God. Of course he is angry. He is perfectly just and righteous and good. And he can't simply overlook it. Of course he must judge it. But he loves his people intensely. And so here again you see his grace and his kindness. Just as through no merit of their own at the beginning of the chapter, God shows extraordinary compassion for Israel. In the opening verses, when she was nothing and didn't deserve it, he, he plucks her up and he gives her life. So now again he shows grace. At the start, when she was naked in the pool of blood and dead, so now she's naked and ruined by her lovers and dead. And God shows grace. Grace at creation, grace at recreation. Have a look at it in verse 62 and 63. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Just two, two amazing things he'll do as we finish. First one is 62, do you see it? They will remember who God is. Ezekiel 16 is the story of a people with fickle hearts who walk out on their God. They've forgotten him. They've forgotten what he's like. They've forgotten who they are. All they provide, all he provided for them. 
what he had done for them, and they had trusted in other gods. Other gods that promised life. But now, verse 62 in the New Covenant, they will remember who God is. They will know that he is the Lord. And again, they will see that he is trustworthy and powerful and good, and they will never forget him again. And in the New Covenant, he'll never be able to. Because he will live within them. Because he will transform hearts. But secondly, he's going to make atonement for their sins, verse 63. Do you see, God will not and God cannot ignore our sin. But he knows that Jerusalem, he knows that Israel has, either in desire or, or capacity, is unable to deal with the sin to deal with all they've done. They can't make atonement. And so in verse 63, it's extraordinary. I will make atonement for all you have done. I will make up for this. Atonement is is dealing with sin. It's bringing together warring parties. It's reconciliation. It's, It's anger being poured out so that people can be friends again. But what's wrong here is that God is the one who makes atonement for his people, sin. It's the wrong way round. Surely the sinful wife should make atonement for what she's done, but God does it for us. Do you see the end of the story? So after giving his faithful, faithless wife into the hands of her brutal lovers, he not only takes her back, but he makes a new and everlasting covenant with her. And he himself pays for her sins. How does he do that? We'll sing about it in a bit. Through the cross of Jesus. At the cross, God can be both perfectly just towards sin, but perfectly merciful towards sinners. Our spiritual adultery is so very serious. But his love and his kindness is so very great. You see that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes in this kind of language, these kinds of ideas of a husband and a wife. And he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Christ gives himself up for his bride. Christ makes atonement for his bride. And Christ is at work cleansing his bride and will finally one day present her to himself as pure and radiant. One day in the future she will reflect in reality what she already is in Christ. And gloriously, gloriously, At the end, everyone will see it. Because the Bible ends with a beautiful marriage. It is such good news. A perfect, beautiful bride dressed in in fine linen given to her. A marriage forever. Revelation 19 and verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Our Father, we say to you, we are so sorry. We're so sorry for where we see ourselves in Ezekiel 16, a people who have been given so much from you, blessed by you in extraordinary ways, and yet who use that blessing to run after other gods. And yet we say thank you because of your extraordinary love for us in the cross. Thank you that you make atonement for the sin of your people, for people who walk out on you. Thank you that you do that. Thank you that Jesus dies in our place. Thank you that despite our faithlessness, our spiritual adultery, thank you that you make a new and everlasting covenant with us. Help us see, please, the reality of our sin, the relational nature of our sin against you, and yet please help us to see your extraordinary love for us. Lord, we want to feel this passage rather than simply understanding it. We're so sorry for our sin, but so thankful for your kindness. Open our our mouths and our hearts as as we praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray.